folks, and welcome to Typology, the show on which we explore the story of you through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner, your co-host. Thrilled to have you here with us today and thrilled about our guest. She's one of our faves, but it's been a while since she's been with us. She's here. She's back today for you. Talking about New York Times bestselling author of more than 25 books with more than 6 million books in print. She's got two brand new books we're talking about today. I'm talking about Enneagram 9. Drum roll, Lisa Turkhurst. Happy to have her here with us today. She's got two books that are brand new. One's called Good Boundaries and Goodbyes. Something that's especially good for Enneagram 9s and 2s, but really great for all of us, right? I'm a 4 and I've needed to learn that. And the other book is You're Going to Make It. It's a special devotional book she's created that's really cool. So we get into these two books and we get into Lisa's story and how she has worked through learning to create boundaries for herself and create a healthy lifestyle as an Enneagram 9 and how to express herself. Really, really cool stuff we talk about. She gives a couple of nuggets that you're going to want to write down, but that's it for me, Anthony Skinner. Super happy that you're here, folks. And now, without any further ado, here is the host of our show, Ian Cron. Technology Tribe, we are so thrilled today to have my friend Lisa Turkhurst here, author of the new book, You're Gonna Make It, 50 Morning and Evening Devotions to Unrush Your Mind, Uncomplicate Your Heart, and Experience Healing Today, and the amazing new book, Good Boundaries and Goodbyes. Lisa, welcome to Typology. Thank you. I'm so excited. I've listened to this podcast, so it's so fun for me to actually be on a podcast that I listen to. And I'm such a huge fan of your work, Ian. Thank you. Oh, Lisa, I'm just so, I'm, first of all, I'm terribly pleased that you listened. Uh, and now I'm a little nervous, but <laughs> I, I'm just, uh, as you are of mine, we share mutual friends who love you dearly. And I am a fan, have long been a fan of your work. It's been five years, I think four years since you've been on Typology. So lots to catch up on today. You are an Enneagram 9. I just want to remind people, the peacemaker, sometimes called the mediator, and uh, oftentimes, as little people, not always, but sometimes, nines kind of felt a, a little lost or unimportant. And I like the word lost, sort of lost in the mix of life. And um, a lot like twos, they maybe grew up feeling like they weren't allowed to have needs or to mm. express themselves, uh, especially they were not <laughs> allowed to express anger. Uh, and they kind of then decided to keep a, you know, a low profile and focus on the needs of others. And, uh, y'all know the big feature of nines is they're conflict averse and, uh, in order to avoid pain and loss of separation. So I just want to give people that heads up. And I want to ask you, Lisa, I know you're an Enneagram fan. How did you know you were a nine? Okay. Well, first of all, I didn't for a long time. I think I have cycled through thinking I was every number except a four or a five. But I think this is a little bit typical of a nine as well. And, you know, the first Enneagram test I took, it was just a really simple one on the computer that I found. 
And I was terrified to show anybody my results because I pretty much scored evenly across all numbers. And I got so scared, meaning like, maybe that means I'm a psychopath or something. So I did not know what that meant. And then I, I went from, okay, I'm not a psychopath, but I felt like, gosh, do I even know myself? Hmm. And it took me forever to land on a nine. And I think it's because I'm not sure if this is indicative of my personality type, like the Enneagram nine, or if it's just my wiring, I'm not sure, but I am hesitant to express feelings until I have time to think about it because I feel like once I say I'm a nine or once I say I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm mad, then I feel like I have to own that and I don't want to own the consequences of it until I'm absolutely sure that I'm ready to own that. Hmm. And so, yes, that's a very long answer just to say, yeah, I'm a nine and it took me a while to figure it out. It is very common at nines. It's also very common of sixes. Lots of teachers, myself included, will say at the end of a workshop, if someone comes up and they're like, I can't figure it out, we go, check out six. Mm. Uh, and I'd say nines are also up in that category in part, and I understand why you scored high across the board, because you see the world through the eyes of almost every single type. And mm -hmm. so it can become you know, confusing to the nine and like sixes, you have issues around decision-making. So all of that is very understandable, you know, really understandable. Yeah. You know, it's funny with a nine as well, because I relate so much with other people, I can be in a disagreement with somebody and I completely see where they're coming from. And I actually agree with a lot of the points they're making. And so, you know, it, it's a gift in that productive conversations happen really easily, but it's a curse because I want to avoid the conversation at all costs, especially if there's going to be tension in it. So, yeah, in my experience, nines definitely see the merits in the other person's feelings and their argument and their insights, which can then sometimes lead the nine to become confused about whether their feelings and insights are valid. And then they might capitulate and say, well, you have a good point and I'll work harder, which they negate, they self-forget in that moment. And it's like, I think a healthy nine begins to say, I hear your point and I have a point, you know? Yes. yes. I was going to say, and it can, can, that's a great point, Ian, because it can confuse the other person as well, right? The other person think, oh yeah, they hear me, they get me, they're with me, they're on my side. They think exactly like I'm thinking because the nine can empathize with what the other person's thinking or feeling, but might be in a, no, I'm in a totally different place, but I can see what you're saying. Yeah. You know, I had to develop a new mantra after the death of my marriage. I was married almost 30 years and there were addictions and affairs with him. And it was a perfect storm for a nine to completely diminish my needs in an effort to do my best to try to save this other person. And so my new mantra after the death of my marriage is, I will no longer diminish the best of who I am to cover up for the worst of who someone else is. Ooh, say that again, Lisa. I will no longer diminish the best of who I am to cover up the worst of who someone else is. Okay, so I want every type to hear that 
and own that and integrate that truth, that insight into their lives. So we all need that. But nines and twos, I really want you to hear that. I really, I mean, Lisa, that is huge work for a nine to arrive at that place and to make it actionable, to actually say, okay, I'm going not just think about this. I'm not going to just agree with that idea. I'm actually going to integrate that into my life. And uh, I want to ask you two questions in terms of your relationships. Number one, nines often have trouble breaking up with other people. Could be friends, not just uh, romantic partners, in part because they may go into the conversation and say, I want to break up, but they are not that clear. And the other person at the end of the conversation can be confused. Like, did she just break up with me? Because it wasn't very clear because maybe they were kind of afraid of like conflict or expressing anger. So I don't know if I'm still going out with Lisa. (laughs) (laughs) Or has that been an issue for you? You have no idea. (laughs) It's so fresh. It's so fresh right now. I'm just dying that you're bringing this up. But yep. Pretty much that is, I relate to that very much. And here's the thing. It's not that I don't want to be clear. It's that sometimes I care so much about what the other person is feeling that I forget it's not my job to own their feelings or manage their feelings. It's my job to be kind but clear. And it's their job to manage their feelings. But as a classic nine, I want, so desperately to think about how they're going to feel and then navigate my world to make sure they don't feel that. And it's an impossible scenario and it doesn't serve the other person at all. No, my uh, daughter is a nine and she's 28 and she's very self-aware. She's done a ton of work, which I'm so proud of. And when she breaks up with a guy, she's married now. So this is, you know, when she was younger, Uh, that guy knew it. Like she, like that guy and her mantra, I mean, actually her mom and I taught her this, it was compassion and clarity. So you want to have compassion. And if you have a lot of compassion, you will be clear so that that person doesn't walk away with, you know, uncertainty about where they stand with you as a person. So tell me, why do you think then nines in particular have trouble getting out of difficult relationships, again, with friends, with romantic, it doesn't really matter. It's in important relationships. Well, I think more relationships die, not because we attempt to have the hard conversations and they go poorly, but because of conversations that needed to be had that just were never had. Mm. And so I think it's hard for a nine to break up with any kind of relationship because we truly do want the best for the other person we really do have a heart of compassion. There's a part of us that can see where the other person is coming from, like I said before, and can kind of go, wow, that's such a valid point. So for me, what was absolutely crucial is for me to have scripts of how to say no, because breaking up is like the big step, but everyday no answers are also hard for nines. And so I came up with a standard script that I felt like was a good reflection of my compassion, but also crystal clear. And here's my script. While my heart says yes, yes, the reality of my time makes this a no. Say it again, Lisa. While my heart says yes, the reality of my time makes this a no. 
Mm-hmm. And also in all the work that I've done, I have a brilliant counselor. His name is Jim Cress. I've also worked with Michael Cusick quite a bit, and I yes. know you know him as well. But Jim taught me adults inform, children explain. And so the mm. reason I was careful to put a period at the end of that sentence is because I've learned it is not necessary to over explain why this is a no, because then it just invites that well, is she saying no or is she not saying no? And you don't want to give a no where the other person feels like, oh, that's not really a no. That just means she needs more information and I can convince her otherwise. And so it's really important for me just to say that statement, put a period, do it with compassion and kindness. And that's such a true reflection of my heart. My heart does say yes. And the reality of my time makes this a no. I love that. I want everybody, every type to hear it. But again, particularly nines and twos. Uh, Another, I'll tell you just another mantra that I like when I'm dealing with people. Usually I've gotten into a hot situation or one that's coming up on getting hot. This is also really good with late adolescent to adult children. When they're doing something that you don't like, you know what I mean? Like it could be treating you poorly or however it is. I just, I don't ever get into the facts. I just go toward the feelings. That's number one, mm-hmm. right? I go toward the feelings, not the facts. Facts are debatable. You know, feelings are not. My feelings aren't really debatable. That's right. Secondly, uh, so because of that, I tend to say to people when I'm not in a good space with something they're doing, I go, you know, I'm really uncomfortable with this behavior. And they may go, well, why? And I can just go, because I'm just really uncomfortable with it. I mean, and I don't actually have to tell you, I don't have to, usually someone's actually trying to litigate me. Like they mm-hmm. got me in the stand and they want to go, well, why? And then if I say why, they'll be like, well, that's a stupid thing, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, I just get in the stand and I go, because I'm uncomfortable. And that's all there is to it. And that is great. Yeah. It's been very helpful to me. And I think it would be helpful to nines because it's like nines sometimes because they're so, can sometimes be so deferential they'll bend to the other person and go, well, because, 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 because. And it's like, don't do it. Just tell them it's because you're uncomfortable. That's and right. It, Amen with, to that. I yeah, need to write that down. I like that word, uncomfortable, because yeah. I can own that feeling. I can, You know, I said I have a hard time because I'm mad, because the definitive nature of I'm angry mm. seems so big and not really in keeping with my heart. So it's hard for me to... Mm you know, hang on to or own some of those harder emotions, but uncomfortable. I can own that all day long. So thank you. That was a gift to me. Mm. So I know you're really into the Enneagram. You have been for years. I know you've done a lot of study around it and that you've used it in your own life. Do you know what your subtype is? Well, I, my wing is an eight. Mm-hmm. So that I think, honestly, I go to a six so much that I have gone through stretches where I think I'm a six, I think I'm a six, but I know that I'm a nine wing eight. But boy, if I'm with a six, I feel the most safe of any other number. Interesting. Mm. That kind of makes sense. That kind of makes sense. Um, But maybe it's because I, you know, the last 10 years of my life, I've experienced so much trauma and a nine typically does go to a six in times of stress. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't really like the saying that in times of unhelp, a nine goes to a six because I think I would go to a six sometimes for really healthy reasons. So I just say in times of stress, I go to 
I, I can very much be a, a six. I'm bracing for impact. I can think of every worst case scenario. And I think if I think of the worst case scenario, then at least I've prepared myself a little bit mentally. And also I look at the people around me and I think, you know what? I am not trying to control you or manipulate you. I'm actually just trying to save your life. That's what I'm doing. And mm. so I relate so much to the sixes, but I think the, the, that six, the ways that I'm acting in a six, I think it's because of the trauma that I went through where worst case scenarios did come true, where I did have to constantly break for brace for impact, where the worst things really did come about. And so I think trauma can sometimes pull us into that number that we go to in times of stress pretty strongly. Mm. You know, what would be a good resource for you to check out subtypes is um, Beatrice Chestnut's book, The Enneagram, The Complete mm. Enneagram. She goes through every type subtype. And I just, I mean, I just recommend it to you because it's so helpful for getting more and more clarity on type and type structure. Uh, so I'm going to circle to the new book. I want to remind everybody the new book is called You're Gonna Make It. And the other new book is called Good Boundaries and Goodbyes, which I, I love that a nine has written a book called Good Boundaries and Goodbyes because. That just tells me, man, you've done some work. And it also sounds, Lisa, like you've been in a 12-step program. Is that true? I have not been in a 12-step program, but I have taken my healing so, so seriously. I don't even know the number of hours now that I have been in counseling, but I became so passionate about doing the work and encouraging other Christians to do the work that I started a podcast called Therapy and Theology. And I bring together Jim Cress, so he's my therapist, and then Joel Mutamale, Dr. Joel Mutamale, who is an expert in theology. And so I would say Jim brings the therapy, Joel brings the theology, and I bring the issues. And so it's just amazing. So even on my own podcast, I'm getting free therapy. (laughs) I love that. I love that. And you know, when you, the reason I said that is there's a particular 12 step community that focuses on issues around codependency mm-hmm. and around uh, relationships where one partner is addicted, usually is an addict of some kind, and the other is equally unhealthy because they become a codependent on the person that qualifies them as the codependent. And I hear so much of what you're saying, obviously the work in codependence has been done in therapy. So that was making me think this other community. So when I say the word codependence, what does it bring up for you as a nine? Well, I wrote in my Good Boundaries and Goodbyes book that I fully recognize that I am, or at least I think I've gotten a lot better, but I was a codependent enabler who refused to acknowledge that I actually had any needs at all Mm -hmm. so that I could try to care for another person who was an addict that their choices affected my life. And so it was equal parts trying to have compassion on them and care for them as well as scared of the ramifications that if I don't do this, it's going to affect me and my children. So Yes. So when I hear the word codependent, here's the best way that I could express it is I'm okay if you're okay. So are you okay? Because I need you to be okay so that I can be okay. Okay. Yes. Yes. That's that's sort of a a mantra of the two that we talk about a lot, actually. 
Yeah, but also of the nine. Yeah. For different reasons, but this is why those twos and nines, man, they can yeah. they can start to look so much like each other. And it can really make it hard for nines and twos to get their type initially, right? Because they will misidentify as the other okay. sometimes or mm-hmm. be confused as to as to being the other. I want to just tell people that if they are partnered with a an addict of any kind or that there's these groups, like one is CODA, which is about codependency. Uh, if you're married to a chemical addict or you are the parent of one or the child of one, well, if you're the child of one, you could go the adult children of alcoholics or adult children of dysfunctional families. You could go to Al-Anon, which is like where my wife goes because she's married to a recovering addict and the mother of one. And so she is so generationally surrounded by crazies. And so that's something I just want to make our people aware of that in addition to therapy, there are these other really great supportive communities that they can tap into. So let's just talk about your relationship with anger for a minute and your evolution in that relationship, because obviously that is the deadly sin of the nine. And, you know, we typically say that nines who haven't done their work yet are, have gone to sleep to their anger. Tell me about that. Tell me about where anger is, was, and is in your life now. Well, for a long time, I would feel angry, but I would feel so badly for feeling angry Mm -hmm. that I would shame myself. And so I spent a very long time trying to manage my anger. And the last time we did this podcast, Ian, I think you're the one that told me this, and I related to it so much that because I have a wing eight, it's really complicated to be a nine who has a really strong wing eight Mm -hmm. because my eight will do something that's indicative of wanting to be in control and maybe even expressing anger. And then my nine will spend forever trying to clean up what my eight just did. Did, Aren't Mm. you the one that said that to me? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so that has been so true with me. And so, you know, you said something about how you think it's amazing that a nine wrote a book on boundaries. Well, a lot of it came out of the fact that my anger presented itself as it was asleep until it wasn't. Mm. And so I found myself living in extremes. Like I found myself saying, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Don't get angry, don't get angry. You know, manage your feelings. And so then all of a sudden, I would think I was doing really well. And then some event would happen and it would be the tipping point. And I would jump to the extreme of saying, I can't take it anymore, I'm done. And so boundaries I discovered for me help bring things back to the middle and become an excellent communication tool that helped me avoid extremes by being able to communicate, this is what I will tolerate. This is what I will not tolerate. This is what I can and cannot give. And this is what I will and will not accept. And this is what I have to give. And this is what I do not have to give. And I'm convinced that more relationships die, not because we attempt boundary conversations and they go poorly, but because there are conversations that are desperately needed that we just simply never have. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, one of the dynamics I used to teach when I was doing therapy with clients was, you know, people will come to you and they'll make a request or they'll make what I call the offer, right? But usually a request. And then I say, you know, there's always a counteroffer, right? Like you can always, if someone comes to you and says, 
as a tour of nine, uh, you know, my car broke down and it's an hour from here and I really need someone to give me a ride. Can you do it? Now, an unhealthy nine would be like, oh boy. And a two would be, oh boy. And it's like, they may say yes when they really want to say no. And I say, okay, well, there is a counter offer, right? Which is, no, I can't drive you an hour tomorrow because I have too much going on. However, I'm happy to go over to your house and walk the dog while someone else does it because I have 20 minutes, but I don't have two hours. So, you know, it's sometimes it's just also for nines and twos to learn to empower themselves, to own their own authority and power and say either, no, I can't, or here's a counteroffer. Does that help? And if the person says it really doesn't help, you go, well, that's all I got. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it, and that's owning your power instead of being subject or tyrannized by the power of the other. That is so true. And I still have to remind myself to this day, their emergency is not my responsibility. Now, obviously, if their emergency is because an accident happened or a medical event happened, then obviously to care well for people, I would cancel everything and immediately attend to them. But more times than not, their emergency is because of their own irresponsibility. Mm. And so if you're having an emergency because of your irresponsibility, that cannot be all of a sudden my assignment for the day. And otherwise I'm trying to manage you as well as me. And so I've had to remind myself of that. You know, one of the things that I wrote in Good Boundaries and Goodbyes, and this was a real turning point for me with boundaries, certain Bible verses would haunt me. Then one Mm. of them was, Jesus laid down his life for his friends. He modeled that for us to do the same thing. And one day I had the biggest epiphany and I said, that is very true. Jesus laid down his life to accomplish a high and holy purpose. Jesus did not lay down his life to enable bad behavior to continue. Man, I love that. By the way, everybody, I'm speaking with my friend Lisa Turkers. I think you all know that. She's the author of the new wonderful devotional, Make It, but also this amazing book, Good Boundaries and Goodbyes, which I mean, what does all this point to? And I'm going to jump into the new book. You are presenting us with one of the best examples of a nine who has done a you-know-what load of work, right? Because all the things you're saying have so much clarity. That's a big thing. It's like, nope, I am really clear. I have some mantras. I don't, you know what I mean? It's like, I have actually boiled this down with a, to efficient language, which a nine would need, but you're speaking it. And even as I'm looking at you, that there's a certain kind of groundedness. I feel like if people could see you, there'd be like a plumb line running down through the crown of your head, right down to the middle of your heart. And it's just sitting there like with groundedness, like you're not being thrown around on the waves and in the wind, you know, which a nine can be when they're not in a great space. So good on you, Lisa Turkhurst. I mean, wow. Thank you. I need to record that and play that every morning. So I don't have to steal that from the podcast. That'll be, that should be my wake up alarm actually. So thank you for that. (laughs) Rock on. Okay. Let's talk about in our time that we have left, let's just talk about make it the new book. It's this book of 50 morning and evening devotions that are really there to help people, particularly for folks that are for women who have been experiencing disappointment, devastating circumstances, and seasons of pain and confusion, et cetera. Tell folks about it. I want them all to really, not just women, I want everybody to hear about this book, but obviously, particularly our women listeners. So 
have at it. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. The reason I wrote You're Going to Make It is because when I was going through so much trauma, I kept asking the question, how long am I going to be in this much pain? And I wanted healing to be like a checklist. I wanted to know, okay, if I do A, B, C, D, and E, then that will be the end of my pain and I will be healed. And healing is messy. Healing is never linear. And it is, it's not a process to get over what's happened to you. It, it needs to be a process to walk through it. And I think it's only when we walk through it that we can acknowledge the pain, deal with the pain, and then we heal from the pain. But so many times I found myself just wanting to deny even what was happening or wanting to tidy it up and hyper-spiritualize everything so that I could I could manage the hard feelings. Mm. And um, I went one time to a therapy group and they went around the circle and they were all telling about their coping mechanisms. And I sat there and I was just bracing myself because I was embarrassed. I didn't have a coping mechanism. You know, some had a cocaine addiction, some had a pot addiction, Netflix, drinking. You know, they had all these things that they used to numb their pain. And so I toyed with the idea of just saying, yeah, you know, maybe I was addicted to cocaine. But then I was like, no, because I bet there's a certain language that people use if they've really ever taken cocaine. I've never taken it. So I was like, yeah, I can't have that. I can't make up a coping mechanism. So I told the therapist, I just said, I, I think that's my problem. I think I don't have a coping mechanism. And she said, you 100% have a coping mechanism, Lisa. You hyper-spiritualize everything so that you can get over it without going through it. Mm. And it's not bad to get Bible verses and use Bible verses as a source of strength. But if we're leapfrogging over the necessary steps of healing, then we're not doing ourselves or other people any favors. So I wrote, you're going to make it to stand beside someone not to teach them any big lessons and not to tell them what to think, but to give them a lot to think about and give them a new rhythm to their life instead of being consumed with the pain. Wake up every morning. Don't put pressure on yourself to you know, do this massive, amazing Bible study in the morning. I love massive, amazing Bible studies. I write them. But instead, when you're kind of overwhelmed with the pain in your life, wake up every morning and receive one nugget of truth because that may be all your heart can handle. And then at night, before you go to bed, verbalize one thing that you're releasing. And it became such a powerful rhythm, a daily rhythm, because healing is very daily. Yes, and it's very incremental, usually. Mm -hmm. um, I was thinking about something that you just said triggered something in me. Because I'm so involved in the world of addictions, particularly chemical addictions, not process addictions, though I have tons of friends who are have struggles with process addictions, that one of the biggest addictions and one of the hardest to get over is a religion addiction. Hmm. Now, most people don't think that exists, right? It's like, well, what's wrong with a religion addiction? Well, any addiction, regardless of what it is, cannot be good for you. Like, it's just not healthy. And what you're describing, I think, just triggers in me the idea of a religion addiction, which is a one that allows you to spiritually bypass life. Yes. That's the phrase that gets used a lot in the recovery world is like spiritual bypassing. You want to skip steps. Like a lot of times people are like, well, I just want to focus on Jesus. And I think it's really selfish and sinful to focus on me. And I'm like, how convenient. Like, oh, I see. So you just want to focus on Jesus so much 
that you don't have to look at your interior world mm -hmm. and you want to call it egotistical, you're actually going to make it a virtue not to have to look at your life in the name of religion. And I'm saying, that's an addiction, man. You got to face the pain and make something better out of it. Anthony, you got something you got there. Yeah, I was just thinking the same, a similar thing. You know, the deadly sin of the nine is anger. And in religion, oftentimes, we we tend to feel so much guilt around anger that we suppress that anger. And the reality is we only get angry about things we truly care about. It's the most vulnerable of all emotions. And if you're not allowed to access or feel the anger, then it's going to be really hard to get in touch and express what you truly care about. Mm -hmm. So you're going to stay in a cycle of being lost. And a lot of times we do use religion to suppress that and bypass that. And therefore we'd never really show up to ourselves or show up to other people. Yeah. I agree with that, Anthony. And I think for me, I was confusing a flourishing relationship with the Lord mm -hmm. with this I don't know that I would say I had a religious addiction, but I definitely was hyper-spiritualizing things. I did have a spiritual bypass. Yeah. And so here's one way it would play out with me. I would only pay attention to half of a verse. So, wow. for example, like a verse on anger. It's like, in your anger, do not sin. Yeah. So I would just focus on the do not sin. Yeah. So I, I would, in my mind, I would say, if I'm angry, I'm sinning. But... That's not what that verse is saying. It's saying in your anger, like, yeah, you're going to feel angry. That's yeah. a natural human emotion. It's what you do with that anger that determines whether it's sinful or not. And so there were so many Bible verses like that, that mm -hmm. I was just gravitating toward one part of it and just holding on to it for dear life, but not really keeping in focus the totality of it. And one thing that really helped me is in Mark chapter 14, when Jesus is expressing the most honest human emotion that I honestly couldn't believe that it was recorded in the Bible. But in Mark chapter 14, before Jesus goes to the cross, he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Mm -hmm. So Jesus even admitted, I mean, Jesus was sinless, but he was very much sinned against. And so Jesus even admitted, like, this is so hard, I think it might kill me. That's profound, mm -hmm. right? And then he goes on to say, God, everything is possible for you. So take this cup from me. God, I don't want this to be my life and you could fix it. And why are you not fixing it? Mm. And I just find that expression of Jesus's humanity, though he was complete in divinity, he expressed that. And I think it's such an example. He had to work through what he walked through. Mm. He did. And most people don't really see that, but he wrestled just like we do. I love that it feels like your book is making space to, for an invitation to experience those things with Christ. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, so I can experience my anger or whatever it might be in the presence of Christ. I love that. Oh man, that's so good, Anthony. It's a really great place for us to wrap up. I'm, I, hey folks, Lisa Turkhurst is on. She's written this amazing new book. At least I'm going to give the whole title right now, even though it's a very uh, robust title. That, by the way, everybody, all authors now are required to have a robust subtitles <laughs> so that SEO will pick up and direct people in the right direction. This book is called You're Going to Make It 50 Morning and Evening Devotions to Unrush Your Mind, Uncomplicate Your Heart, and Experience Healing Today. Uh, and also, I just want to commend this other book that's out now. And I love this title, Good Boundaries and Good 
buys. And we've spoken a lot about, listen, everybody, this isn't for nines. Yeah. You know, nines are the biggest part of our audience, Lisa. I don't know if you know that, but we have more nines listening to typology than any other type. Wow. I still haven't figured out why. Maybe you can explain it to me. It's one day because I'm like, why nines? Why not ones or why not? You know why? I have a theory because nines relate to all the numbers. So no matter what you're talking about, we can relate to it. Mm, That makes sense. I haven't heard that explanation. I'm going to take it from a nine. That is that it's uh, that it's most likely to be true because me as a four just hasn't figured it out yet. All right. So I want all of you to get out and get these books. I want you to soak them up. And you know what? I am going to say this because truth is truth. I mean, yes, the target audience of you're going to make it is women. But guys, I don't want you to think there's not something in there for you. I mean, pain is pain. We go through difficult seasons. I'm sure that all of you who are critical thinkers can adapt what, what's in there and apply it to your own life. And of course, good boundaries and good buys. Come on, that's for everybody. And I'm so grateful, Lisa, that you've been on Typology. I hope it's not a lot of, another five years. I really do. And how we haven't met each other speaking somewhere, I don't get it. I know we need to fix that. We really definitely need to fix that. And hey, just have me on any time. I mean, I don't have a lot of wisdom with the other numbers, but I have experiential wisdom being a nine wing eight. So there you have it. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, folks, you're going to get this book. You're going to make it and you're going to get this other book. Good boundaries and goodbyes. And Lisa, I hate to say it, but goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) That was good. Nobody's done that yet. That was brilliant, Ian. Uh, Spoken like a true four. (laughs) Typology Tribe, remember these words. May you have love. May you have joy. May you have peace. May you have healing. May you have rest. Until next time. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.